Well, today I want to do something a little different with you as a congregation. As we start in this new series this morning, I just want to talk to you uh, very candidly and very directly as a spiritual family today. Uh, I'm thrilled that you are here this morning, and I believe that in this series you're going to be uh, challenged. I think you're, at least I pray that you're going to find it intriguing and interesting. But I want to speak to you today as a family on the theme of my prayer. God, we need a miracle. And I want to talk about leveling up to a life of praise. One of my favorite tools in my toolbox just so happens to be this level right here. I've built quite a few things with it. Uh, I use it all the time. I've used it to hang pictures, uh, to put fence posts in, and other things as well. And you know, several times in the Bible, God uses the image of leveling up. He uses the image of balances, the image of scales, and even of a plumb line as he talks about what his perfect plan for us is, his ideal for our life. Psalm 26.12 tells us that God's ideal is for us to say, as King David said, Lord, my feet stand on a level ground. In a great congregation, I will praise the Lord. You see, he wants us to, to have praise in our hearts and our mouths. He wants this to be a place of praise and a place of miracles. In Amos chapter 7, God uses the image of a vertical plumb line to tell his people that their lives are out of alignment. And in Proverbs 16, 11, Solomon speaks of God bringing balance into our lives because his measurements are always perfect. The prophet Isaiah, he speaks of how God levels and balances his creation from the smallest of lives to the grandest of his creation. And he asked the question in Isaiah 40, 12, who's measured the waters in the hollow of his hand or with the breadth of his hand has marked off the heavens? Who has held the dust of the earth in a basket or weighed the mountains on the scales and hills in a balance? And so I believe we need to begin and we need to appeal to him as the God of praise and as the one from whom we need a miracle. Would you pray with me this morning? Heavenly Father, I thank you for the many reasons we have to be grateful. And Father, the, the daily need we have to express that gratitude to you. Before we rush into your throne room to simply acknowledge what a great and wonderful king, what a great and wonderful God you are, to confess the need that, Father, without you, we, we would have nothing. We would be nothing. The Father, too often we rely upon our own hands and our own will to provide for us what we need when in fact you're the giver of every good and perfect gift. Father, we thank you. You're a God that supplies needs. You're a God that knows what our deepest needs are. And Father, we just come before you as individuals in a congregation asking for revival, asking for a miracle, asking to be leveled up in our praise. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning, uh, you know in the history of this church, there have been those moments when this church has come to a crossroads. And I believe we're all aware that right now we are at a turning point where this church has come to a defining moment. And when those moments come, you have a choice of whether you're going to stay the course and walk by faith, or whether the church will step backward in reverse. 
You see, God's people many times in the scripture and in this life, they are brought to these defining moments where God himself will measure their progress. He'll measure their lives against his best ideal, his will and his plans. And when we don't level out according to his commands, well, then it's time for us to level up in knowing. And when we look at the things that exist within our congregation and the things that we share with one another that are going on in our lives, we know that we need to level up and it's going to take a miracle. There's no doubt about that. Now this morning I want to ask you to grab your Bible and if you don't have one, uh, I have some stacked up here in the front. Uh, I'm not sure where they went to, uh, but some of the men have them I believe. They're going to walk down the aisle with them and if you don't have a Bible, oh, Liv, would you grab that then? Uh, Would you hold up your hand? Because I want to make sure you have a a copy of the scripture with you and you could follow along with us in Mark the 6th chapter. So if you need a Bible, you just hold your hand up and they'll make sure that that, that you get one. Again, I want to ask you to turn to Mark chapter 6 and we're going to begin in verses 30 through 33. And this is a miracle that you're probably very familiar with. This is the story of where Jesus fed the 5,000 with the lunch of a little boy. And this miracle is so significant in in the scripture that it is the one miracle that's recorded four different times. In fact, in each of the gospels and the accounts of Jesus' life, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, this story is recorded. And maybe you say, why is this recorded four different times? Friends, I think it's because God doesn't want us to miss his miracle in our life. We read in Mark chapter 6, verse 30, the apostles gathered around Jesus and they reported to him all that they had done and taught. And then because so many people were coming and going that they did not even have a chance to eat, he said to them, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. So they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. But many who saw them leaving recognized them and ran on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And so he began teaching them many things. Now, I believe there are four principles from this story that teach us how to cooperate with God's miracles. And so I want to give them to you. What I want to do is I want to apply them to some of the challenges that we're facing right now as the Springfield Church of Christ and that we're facing in our lives. Now, there's the first principle when you need a miracle, and and number one is this. You need to admit your need. Admit your need. Here's the scene. Jesus is teaching a group of 5,000 people. He is spending the day teaching. In in fact, the Bible says that there are 5,000 men. And I can guarantee you the reason that you find 5,000 men there and that there even are 5,000 men is that there were probably 5,000 women there first, okay? And whenever you find 5,000 men and 5,000 women, you're going to probably find between five and 10,000 children. And that's why most Bible scholars believe that when this miracle occurred, the actual group there listening to Jesus that day was between 15 and 20,000 people total. 5,000 of them just happened to be men. And the problem comes up. The disciples and these people, they've gone all day without food, and they're hungry. They need something to eat, but it's late in the day, and they're out in the middle of nowhere. 
And there's no Taco Bell where somebody can make a run for the border. You know, there's no Sonic where they can go grab a foot-long chili dog and triple bypass cheese fries. Um, there's no McDonald's with a dollar menu, Mom, where they can get their chicken sandwich and senior citizen cup of coffee. Trust me, I know these things. But Jesus' closest followers, they notice this problem, and they know there's a need. They notice they're hungry people, and instead of asking, what can we do about it, or how might God use us to meet this need, Mark 6.35 goes on to say, by this time it was late in the day, and so Jesus' disciples came to him and said, Jesus, this is a remote place. They said, it's already very late. Send the people away so that they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. See, I don't think these disciples could admit that there was a very real need right in front of them. They were trying to get rid of the need. And it's very difficult for many of us to do in our lives, to admit that we have a need, especially those of us that are men. Instead of admitting we have a need, we usually do one of three things that I think these disciples were guilty of doing. First of all, we we procrastinate. That's what these disciples did. Did you notice that in verse 35 it said, it was late in the day when the disciples came to Jesus? They had waited all day to address this need. But they had all day, and yet they wait to the last minute when the situation is critical. The second thing they they do and that we do instead of admitting we have a need is we pass the buck. We say, that's not my problem. That's somebody else's area of expertise. That's someone else's issue. That's not on my job description. And that's what the disciples do. They say to Jesus, send the crowds away. Let them figure it out. Let them find their own food. And they pass the buck. They didn't take ownership of the problem. And the third thing that we do instead of admitting we have a need is that we worry. There are many of us here today uh, struggling with stress. Some of you are struggling with ulcers. And maybe you drink a gallon of Maalox or eat a bowl of Tums a day. And and in this situation, the disciples' anxiety goes into overdrive. And they get out their calculators and they they start to figure how much it's going to take to feed this crowd. And in verse 37, it goes on to tell us it would take more than six months' worth of paychecks to feed these people. Now, friends, think think about this. These disciples are standing next to Jesus. They're standing next to the Son of God in the flesh. They're standing next to the creator of the world who created it all with a spoken word. They're standing next to the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the beginning and the end, the Alpha and the Omega, and they're out looking for Swanson's or Marie Callender's. The answer is right there in front of them. And you see, God, friends, He can't help you. He won't help you until you admit that there is a need, that you need His power at work in your life. That we need His power at work in this place. You see, it begins when we pray like Nehemiah did. One of my favorite characters in the Old Testament. He receives word of the state of Jerusalem that all the walls have been torn down. And Nehemiah 1, it says, When I heard these things, I sat down and I wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and I prayed before the God of heaven and I said, 
Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive. Let your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess, Lord, the sins that we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, that we've committed against you. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this, your servant, and to the prayer of your servants who delight, who take joy, who take honor, who who take a, a sacred wonder in revering your name and give your servant success today. You see, if you can pray a prayer like that as a body of believers, if you could pray a prayer like that as as a Christian, you're ready for the next step, to participate in a miracle from God. And the second principle is to count the existing resources that you already have. You look at your resources and, and you check your supply. You ask, what do we already have? And that's exactly what Jesus told the disciples to do. Look in verse 38. How many loaves do you have, he asked. Go and see. Do the research. Look at the bottom line. Find out what do you have. And they come back and they report. It says when they found out, they said, we have five and two fish. Now, why did Jesus ask that? What do you have? I think it's because God always starts with what we have. And then he does the miracle. We may only have a little money. We may only have a little time. We might only have a little bit of energy. We might only have a little bit of talent. But God always starts with what we have. And so the disciples come to Jesus with the problem. And he does a very interesting thing in verse 37. He looks at the disciples and he says, you feed them. (laughs) He answered according to scripture, you give them something to eat. They come to him. They're letting him do the work, and yet he says, you feed them. And they already know this is humanly impossible. There's no way they can feed this crowd. It's logistically impossible. As I've already mentioned, it's financially impossible for them. We're already told it would take more than six months of wages to feed all these people. So why would Jesus tell them to do something impossible? Why tell them, you feed them? I think it's because he wants to stretch their faith in him. And you know, from time to time, doesn't God do that to each one of us? He does it to us as individuals, and sometimes he does it to us as a church. And when you sense that God is leading you to do something that you know is impossible, and you begin to wonder why, It's because he wants to take you through something so that when all is said and done, you will know beyond the shadow of a doubt it was only by the power of God that this happened. I find it interesting if if you go over to the Gospel of John in his account of this story in John 6.6, it's Simon Peter that that starts this conversation and and it says there that that Jesus asked him this only to test him because he already had in mind what he was going to do. So when Jesus looked at his disciples and said, you feed them, he already knew what was going to happen. He already knew the miracle he had in mind. And I want you to think about that. Because you see, when you need a miracle in your relationships, when you need a miracle in your marriage, 
or, or like you need it in your career, like you need it in your family, like you need it in your finances, friends, God already has in mind what he's prepared to do. The situation that surprised you was no surprise at all to God. He knew in advance before it came your way. He knew how he was going to provide the resources for you to make your way through the situation. And Jesus said, I'm going to wait for you to admit that you have a need. And I'm going to wait for you to access what you already have been given to work with. It says in 1 Chronicles 29, 14, that beautiful words, but, but who am I? And who are my people that we should be able to give as generously as this? God, everything comes from you. And we have given you only what's already come from your hand. Friends, God has given us resources. He's given each of us resources to work with. And then the third principle, offer it up to God. Do you remember who it was that that offered these, these five small loaves of bread and two fish? And who gave those two sardines that day? It was a little boy. John chapter 6 tells us it was a little whiskins of a boy, and, and evidently his mom had packed him a sack lunch that day. And he goes out and he hears Jesus teach. And I want you to think about this. He's probably one of the youngest people in the crowd. This little boy certainly has one of the lowest net worths of anybody in the crowd. In fact, my guess is, if there's a crowd of fifteen to 20,000 people there that day, you got to believe that somebody out there brought some food with him beside this little boy in his lunch. Somebody probably bought one of those picnic baskets, you know, with the, the red and white tablecloths that they're spreading out, and they've got the bottles of Perrier water and the grapes and the cheese and the brie, and, and they've got the, maybe the fried chicken and all the fixings there. But the hero of this story is nothing like them. It's a little boy who didn't have the best lunch. He didn't have the biggest lunch. It's, it's the one who took what he had, and he made it available to God. Verse 40 goes on to say, So they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties, and taking the five loaves and two fish, and looking up to heaven, Jesus gave thanks, and he broke the loaves. And he gave them to the disciples to distribute to the people. He also divided the two fish among them all. Everyone shared. Somehow, as he broke the bread, it kept breaking and breaking and feeding and feeding and breaking and breaking and feeding and feeding until everyone in this fifteen to 20,000 person crowd was fed. It was miraculous. There, there is no other way to explain it but by the wonder-working power of God. Which brings us to that fourth principle. When you need a miracle, when you need something to praise God for within your life, and you're ready to level up in your life, anticipate that God's power will multiply it. When you admit you have a need, you access what you have, and you offer it up to God, friends, Trust God to multiply it and do what you could never do. To take your ordinary little thing and let him do something extraordinary with it. The Bible says that every one of the thousands that were in the crowd that day, look at verse 42, they all ate and were satisfied. 
It wasn't just some snack, some appetizer. They ate and they were full and satisfied. In verse 43 it says, Then the disciples, they picked up twelve basketfuls of broken pieces of bread and fish. This little kid, uh, you know, I imagine that day from all those things, and, and there's a whole sermon in what those twelve baskets mean. But think about the doggy bag that little kid had to take home that day. Can you imagine his mom as he comes through the door? She'd sent him out with a little sack lunch. Now he comes back with 12 baskets full of leftovers. Probably has to have the disciples help him. And they come in, you know, ma'am, where do you want us to set these things? And can't you see his mother's reaction? Where'd you steal all this? I mean, I imagine you did what? You went where? You said what? Jesus said what? You gave him, you gave him what? Billy, are you on drugs? I mean, <laughs> I mean, would you believe your little kid if you sent them out with one lunch for school and they came back with 12 baskets full of lunches? You see, God will multiply whatever we offer him. If we offer him our talent, he'll use it. If we offer him our time, he'll multiply it. If we offer him our finances, he will multiply it. When you give what you have to God, Friends, it's his specialty to do extraordinary things with it. And, and here's the summary of this whole story. And I don't want you to miss it. Oftentimes we are waiting and waiting and waiting for God to do a miracle for us. But friends, God is waiting to do a miracle through us. We're waiting for God to do a miracle for us. God is waiting to do a miracle through us. Why does he wait to do that through us? So that we can be part of the experience. We can be witnesses of the miraculous power of God in experiencing his wonder-working power. And like this little boy with his lunch, we first have to offer to God what we have in order for him to multiply it. I want, I have to say, I have watched this work out all through my life. And it's there in your bulletin. Extraordinary moves of God begin with ordinary acts of obedience. We pray for revival. We pray for miracles within our lives. And sometimes we are on the verge of a miracle. And it's just one simple act of obedience that keeps it from being poured out and unleashed in our lives. It can begin with a little boy offering a sack lunch to God. And it ought to be real obvious, I hope by now, why I chose this story to begin this leveling up series. I said it at the start, I'll say it again. This church needs a miracle. And you see, just like this little boy, God has put this church in the midst of of thousands of starving people. Not all of them are starving physically, though many of them are. But thousands of people starving spiritually. And they are hungry for a freedom. They are hungry for a hope, for a forgiveness, and hungry for a life that only comes in one place and through one person, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. You know, I looked up some statistics this week, and did you know Within a 20-mile radius of this church, according to Stats America, there are 138,000 people. If you narrow that down to just within a 10-mile radius of this church, there are 60,000 people. 60,000 people hungry for forgiveness and a life with Jesus. And here's the kicker on that. 
the Barna Research Group that does all the polling, they say 73% of Americans identify themselves as Christians. Now, I think that's a little high. But that's just people who say, yeah, I'm a Christian altogether. That's just what they call themselves. 6% have different types of faith outside of Christianity. 1% are undecided. And 20% say they have no connection with any faith community. So 21%. Friends, that's 12,600 people who need to be fed with Jesus And I think it's safe to say that the 12,600 people within 10 miles of here and have yet to experience the amazing grace of Jesus Christ and life, they deserve to be fed. And friends, those aren't just statistics. That's your neighbors. That's your classmates that you go to school with every day. That's your family. And God has put this church in a strategic location with a property that accesses one of the only roads that goes this direction on this side of Springfield. We have high visibility to Buck Creek State Park. We're only miles from I-70. And God looks at us and says, you feed them, Springfield Church of Christ. You feed them. And our first impulse is to say, but God, that's impossible. I mean, look at us. That's too big a challenge for us. We don't have resources like that. God, you heard what Roger said. We don't even make our budget. We don't have the money. We don't have the ability. How can we feed all these spiritually hungry people? And God says, oh, church, don't you know I am waiting to do my miracle through you? The key is, are you available? Will you offer to me what you have? Come to me and let me multiply it. And going through this Level Up series, friends, we're going to trust God for a miracle. People are always asking what the mission of the church is. That never changes. Matthew 28, 18-20. We are going. We are baptizing in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We are teaching people to obey everything that Jesus commanded. But what about our vision? People are always saying, what's the vision of the church? And friends, I want to share with you today what mine is. My vision for this church family in the next five years. Now, First Christian, they're celebrating their 90th uh, anniversary. We're not even close to that yet. And frankly, most churches in America are on the decline. They're used to living in the good old days. They're talking about the things that God used to do. But I am praying for myself and for each one of you that we will trust in a God for whom the best days are still ahead for the Springfield Church of Christ if we will trust Him and believe in Him for that. My level up vision is pretty simple. Number one, I want to help 1%. That's it. 1% of the 12,600 people who live within 10 miles of this building find and passionately pursue God. That's not much. That's 126 people in five years. Whether they're in the exploring phase, the discovering phase, the growing phase of their spiritual journey, and you say, Bill, we had a vision for the church. We were going to build an education wing We were going to build a large fellowship hall. We were going to put a baseball diamond out by the barn. Friends, I am much more interested now in building followers of Jesus than I am in building buildings. I'm interested in building followers of Jesus as Lord and Savior. Now, I'm interested in what buildings do. 
I'm interested in a place where people can hear about Jesus. I'm into lives being changed. I'm into marriages being healed and restored, into emotions being put back together and broken lives being put together by God's grace. I'm into addicts finding recovery. And all those things can happen in this church on a daily basis. And so, my second thing I want to see is is also with the small groups of this church. I want to see a grief recovery group. I want to see a group for people that are struggling in their family with Alzheimer's and dementia, a support group, an addiction recovery group. You see, secondly, I want want to bring the presence of Jesus into every neighborhood within 5, 10, 20 miles of this church. Small group Bible studies like we're going to talk about tonight that are starting. Think about what was the second greatest commandment that Jesus told us about? The first was to love the Lord your God with what? All your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and your strength. And Jesus said in Matthew twenty-two thirty-nine, the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And the fact of the matter is that the majority of you, you don't even know who your neighbors are. You don't know who lives two or three doors down from you. We don't know our neighbors. And because of that, we don't love our neighbors We've got to break down our wall-building mentality about people that look differently from us, that lead differently from us, that worship differently from us, that live differently from us, or speak differently from us. And we've got to be bridge builders in the name of Jesus Christ in our neighborhoods, and we've got to love our neighbors. And then number three, I want to radically unleash compassion by tripling the number of volunteers in our ministry teams in the next five years. For most of your teams, that means you're going to add between five and ten people to your team. People who care about serving the poor, the disenfranchised, the marginalized, the forgotten in this world. People who want to see our missions giving back up to 15% and investing in homes next door and globally because I want to see more people reached by the chestnuts in Kosovo. I want to see more young people touched by Mountain Mission School in Grundy, Virginia and and AIDS reaching more people out of Noblesville, Indiana and and the Christian Children's Home in Wooster, Ohio and in Springfield, Ohio through the Pregnancy Resource Center because I believe in the love. I believe in the passion. I believe in the justice of God and how it can make ripples out into the decaying world around us with the incredible healing. I believe because there's still power in the name of Jesus Christ. And how many of you could get stoked about belonging to a church like that? Friends, there is no better investment in this world today than the church. The church is of inestimably more worth and value. And we have a team in this place already that has worked long and hard Myself, Susan, Joyce, the elders and the deacons, past and present, the worship team, all the ministry teams. And we know the potential of this investment to pay enormous dividends for us as as part of the kingdom of God. Your neighbors and your communities that you come from as well. You see, Jesus says in Revelation 22.12, Look, I'm coming soon. My reward is with me, and I'll give to each person according to what they've done. You have no idea how grateful I am for so many of you.
Among you are some of the most competent, humble, and courageous people that I know. And I don't want you to miss why, why these three goals that I'm asking you to partner towards are so important. Because a vision like this is only embodied through love. It's only embodied through love. And how great is your love for other people? How much do you love your neighbors? How much do you love your fellow students? How much do you love your colleagues at work or, or your family? That's a test that the disciples, I believe, they failed at first. They looked at the thousands of people that they felt, we can't do a thing about their need. They saw a problem. Jesus saw people. They saw an obstacle. Jesus saw an opportunity to do something. And I believe in the priesthood of all believers. And I know some of you might think, well, Bill, you know, church growth, that, that's the job of you and the elders. You know, you, you've got a good staff. You've got other people. You don't need me. But friends, I want you to listen to me be, precisely because the needs are so high and the challenges are so great. That's exactly why we need you. If you haven't heard it through this message, it's time for all hands on deck. It's, all, it's time for every arm straining at the oars of the lifeboat to go and grab one more soul sinking in this world to save for Jesus. We all need to experience what Isaiah did in Isaiah 6 when he saw the Lord high and lifted up and the Lord said, who will go for us? And he said, here am I, I'll go. And you need to know we've got dozens of volunteers in this church doing dozens of jobs. And the rest of you, I'm coming for you. <laughs> All right, Peter wrote in 1 Peter 4, verse 10, each of you, use whatever gift you've received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, they should do as one speaking the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength that God provides so that in all things, God can be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. So we're going to resource this through love. And then we're going to resource it through sacrifice. It's what the disciples weren't willing to do, but this little boy was. He made it possible by giving Jesus what he had. And the legacy of this church, you know, if we could tell the story of the people that have made the investment sometimes of, of thousands of dollars for this church, tens of thousands, for some of you it meant $20. We can't all give equally. But we can sacrifice equally from whatever God's entrusted to us. But then lastly, we're going to see this church grow only through passionate prayer and praise. In other words, we will not see a miracle in this place in five years unless we passionately become a people of prayer. So when we have a 24-hour period of prayer, when we have an elder stand up at a meeting and ask you to pray for the church, whatever opportunity you have in your day that you make in your day, we have to passionately pray for revival. We have to pray for the miracle of God. We have to pray for that heart of praise. Remember what the Hebrew author said about Jesus? In Hebrews 5.7, he said, It was during the days of Jesus' life on earth he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. So friends, as I close this morning, I'm going to have the worship team come up. I just want to ask, are you ready to level up? Ready to level up in your praise? You're ready to level up in seeking to participate 
with the miracle of God for this place or for your life? It was an old poem that I've always stuffed in my Bible or kept in my files. It says this, Who's somebody else? I should like to know. Does he live at the north or the south? Or is it a lady fair to see whose name is on everybody's mouth? For Meg says, somebody else will sing and somebody else can play. And Jack says, please let somebody else do some errands today. If there's any hard or unpleasant task or difficult thing to do, it's always offered to somebody else. Now, isn't this very true? But if some fruit or a pleasant trip is offered to Dick or Jess, we hear not a word of somebody else. Why? Well, I'll leave that to you, I guess. The words of cheer for a stranger lad that somebody else will speak. And the poor and helpless who need a friend, good somebody else must seek. The cup of cold water in Jesus' name, oh, somebody else will offer. And words of love for a broken heart, brave somebody else will proffer. There are battles in this life we alone can fight and victories too to win. And somebody else cannot take our place where we should have entered in. But if somebody else has done his work while we for ease have striven, it will only be fair if the blessed reward to somebody else is given. Would you stay with me this morning? And would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I thank you for coming to us in the flesh to show us what a life lived for the honor and the glory of the Father was all about. And if you chose with tears to offer up prayers and petitions, knowing that that God could spare you from death, and if you could be heard not just because you were the Son of God, but because you were obedient and submitting to the Father. Then, Lord, we can be heard as we submit ourselves to the Father. And, Lord, we just confess to you once again, we need a miracle in this place. We want to see you at work in this place so that when we celebrate our 90th anniversary, it will be as one among many individuals that simply say, I believe and I'm an example of the power of God. The name of Jesus still causes ripples. It did it in my life. It's doing it through my life and ministry in this family. And God, I am so thankful. I'm a part of what you're doing right here at the Springfield Church of Christ. For some in this room, Father, I know it begins with submitting to you as their Lord and Savior for the first time. And it may seem like they don't have a lot of a life to come and bring to you because of the mess they've made and the problems they have. But Father, I'll guarantee to them it's worth more than five little loaves and two fish because you made them in your image. If they'll come just as they are, Lord, I know you'll receive them. You'll forgive their sins. You'll make them new through the gift of your Holy Spirit. Father, they will have a life they could never purchase, they can never craft or create on their own that is only found through the blood of Jesus. Maybe there's someone looking for a church home today and, and they're ready to put their hand to the oar. Father, if that's their decision, you let them come. And I pray all this in Jesus' name.